Welcome, everyone, to Season 2 of the Sport Kite Podcast. I am your host, Nick O'Neill, and I wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening. If you haven't already, would love it if you hit the subscribe button so that you get new episodes of the Sport Kite Podcast delivered to you fresh every week. We do kind of a little bit of everything. Uh, talks about tips, techniques, and terminology. And then we also do interviews with some of the prominent flyers, builders, designers, all of that that is out there. And we deliver that here on the Sport Kite podcast. If you haven't already, go over to sportkite.org, kind of give it a check out and uh, give us a like and a follow on Facebook. We'd love you for that. If you like what you're hearing here on the Sport Kite podcast, consider going to buymeacoffee.com slash sportkite and chipping in a little bit to help us keep this podcast and the website funded and going for generations to come. All right, so I am going to go ahead and jump into this episode. This episode is the first of several kind of multi-episodes where I did an interview with the John Baresi of KiteLife.com and KiteForge. And I'm going to kind of give an introduction of him during the interview, but if you don't know who he is, go ahead and just check him out on KiteLife.com or type John Baresi followed by the word kite into the great World Wide Web and you will be amazed at what pops up. So before we get started with the actual interview, let me just share a little bit of a story that I have, uh, a personal story that I have with John. So John and I have been friends for something like 14, 15 years. Uh, Gosh, I actually kind of forget how long it's been. But uh, I had just gotten out of the military. I was going to college. I was kind of bouncing around a little bit. And I fell in love with sport kites. And I was very new to it. I really didn't know what I was doing. And I really didn't have anyone I could learn from. But I happened to be in Boulder, Colorado. And there is a very famous kite store there called Into the Wind. And I went in. They kind of introduced me to a little bit more serious sport kite flying. And they talked about kite festivals and all this other stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to do that. And on a whim, I just typed in kite festival into Google and up pops the South Padre Island Kite Festival that would be happening in January. And it just so happened that there was, before the event, there was going to be a quad clinic where at the time, uh, John Bressy and his team, iQuad, a rather famous uh, quad line performing team, was going to be, and they were going to be teaching people how to fly kites and teaching people how to refine their quad line kite flying. So at this point, I had never flown a quad line kite. And I was just like, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to hop in a van with some friends. We're going to drive the 17 hours or whatever down to South Padre Island, Texas. We're going to go to this event and we're just going to have fun. So I ended up going. I met the members of iQuad, instantly fell in love with them. We just had a great connection right off the bat. I have been longtime friends with all those folks uh, ever since then. And it was actually uh, both Steve DeRoy and John Baresi that showed me how to connect with a quadline kite. And yeah, uh, within 
pretty much minutes, I was up and flying, I was feeling it, and I was really just loving this whole sport. So definitely a little bit of credit goes to him for being such a positive entry into the sport kite community uh, for me. And I've, I've been lucky enough to see him do this with a ton of other people. So I'm very thankful that he wanted to share kind of you know, our friendship and a little bit more in depth about him and just kind of let me poke fun at him for some things and also just kind of, you know, dig deeper into some of the great things it is about our community and about sport kite flying. All right, so I've said enough. Let's go ahead and get started uh, with this first episode with John Bressy. I am here with John Baresi, a good friend of mine that I've known for, I'd say, maybe 12 to 15 years. Uh, mm -hmm. We met on the kite field. And I'm super thankful that he's taken the time out to kind of sit down and have a chat about his general kite life, his approach to kites, and kind of everything that defines kites for him. So before I get started, though, I just kind of wanted to give a little basic background on John if you don't know him. Um, he's been flying since the age of 15, and he first picked up a sport kite in about 1990 uh, on the Marina Green in San Francisco. Now he's, uh, you're in your 40s, aren't you? Yeah, I turned 46 this year. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, and, and you've been in, in 20 different countries. I'm, I'm hoping to see 46 different countries. You should start, you know, hitting your country to age mark. Well, you know, Ray Bethel started when he was fifty, and he, I think he, I think he went to more countries than you know than his age was at the end. So <laughs> that's yeah, my goal. It, that, that should be all of our goal, right? Mm -hmm. um, but definitely, you have been one of the most prolific uh, sport kite flyers and competitors in North America, earning national champion after national champion uh, for. A handful of different kinds of sport kite circuits. So not only the traditional AKA circuit, which is around now, but the circuits before that, which was, was it the kiting magazines circuit? Mm -hmm. They had their own, correct? Yeah, the American Kite Magazine uh, National Circuit, correct. And then, uh, I mean, you had been flying in, in quite a few of those. We'll, we'll get into your competition record in a little bit. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so after that, you kind of went on, you... You won, you were the youngest ever recipient of the Steve Etikin Award, which is the Kite Flyer of the Year Award. It's a lifetime achievement uh, from the American Kite Flyers Association. You also have flown on multiple teams. You've flown professionally. Well, you fly professionally, but when I say you've flown professionally, I mean, <laughs> like you flew for Volkswagen, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been, been, been fortunate that area. Um, Red Bull um, Air Races, uh, Volkswagen, uh, the uh, Shanghai Auto Show, um, Firestone Show, um, Cavalia Circus. Uh, had, had, a, had a number of different uh, different formats, interesting experiences to to fly in front of um, more commercial audiences. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you've you've done it not just uh, solo, but also with other flyers. And you've also done it as a, a team flyer, correct? Um, yeah, to the best of my recall, I don't think I've, don't think we've ever had like a, you know, a, a full scale professional, um, team gig in that regard, like a, like a, um, like a pet, like a hired show, but, okay. uh, but, but we've definitely, definitely had a lot of, um, big exposures. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then, so you also, you've 
you have kitelife.com, which is by far the the most comprehensive and the biggest kite-related website that is out there um, with a massive archive of, of kite information, knowledge, and, and everything there. And then you have your own company with KiteForge, which you make or you design and and make your own kites and distribute those and then of course you have your your teams that you've flown on which currently right now is is team kite life correct that is true all right so boy (laughs) i'm gonna just have to include a link to your biography because it's like page after page after page after page and i'm yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, you know, it's uh, yeah. That's 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 some of it. Um, and I just just to, to you know, because it's, it's near and dear to my heart. And one of the mm-hmm. things that um that really moves me is that that I've I've been I've had the the good fortune to be able to experience this community for so long from from a multitude of different angles. And and some of the others that kind of help round that out is that um I've served on the the board of the Kite Trade Association when that was active, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I've served as a regional director for the American Kite Flowers Association. I've served as a as a president as as you did. Um, um, and so it's, a, it's very interesting when you get to see it from all of those different angles, not just recreational or business or, or so on. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you were you were one of the youngest or you were the youngest president of the AKA until I came along. That's true. <laughs> That's my claim to fame is well, they, they, I took that got, title. <laughs> they just got younger and better looking, right? So yeah. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so, um, <laughs> oh boy. Oh, the mm, joy. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So let's kind of go back to sport kite competition because you have kind of been there from we'll say, you know, the, the upstart of what we'll call new sport kite competition, where it was getting away from, you know, just Peter Powell stunters, and it was actually getting into, you know, actual dual line kites and starting to fly precision and routines. And it was getting a little bit more developed in the 90s. Um, So, I mean, you picked it up in 1990, you've, you've been through the peak of sport kite flying where hundreds of competitors were coming on the field and then, you know, you've kind of run the gamut. Mm. So, uh, first question, you predominantly competed in the United States, correct? That is true. Um, I, yeah, I've had, I've, the, the only international competition that I've experienced was, um, uh, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know, I call it like a guest spot. So uh, uh, when I went to the Tokyo Bay flight party in, in, in Japan, uh, 2007, I think it was, um, it, they, they allowed me to enter the competition there. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's predominantly been U.S. There's nothing really notable outside. Um, the, the international experience that I've had in competition has, has uh, really just been on the judging side in, in China um, and with the, uh, the World Sport Kite Championships in Berksamer. Okay. Uh- I generally most sport kite competition, no matter where it is in the world, they kind of have roughly the same rule set, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the for the most part. Yeah, with you know, like some tweaks here and there and and stuff. Um, but what for you has stood out as differences, kind of based on location, and it could even be differences, you know, within the United States, uh, how people approach sport kite flying in in those areas. Um, in, in the context of competition, mm-hmm. um, hmm. 
Well, in the broad context, the sure, competition sure. of 20, 30 years of competition. Of course. Um, well, you know, in my, my exposure to, to actual what I would call like regular season competition um, overseas has been pretty minimal. I've seen very little of it, but um, I've been able to observe it um, vicariously um, and, and, of course, talked with a lot of competitors. And, you know, it, it, it is for the, for the most part the same. I, I think what I've found progressively over the years is that um, Europe – uh, in particular, and, and I think Japan as well has um, managed to retain more of their institutional memory. So there are a lot more of the people that were there once upon a time. And so, um, you know, it's, what's kind of interesting is that, in, in, indeed, as you mentioned, I came in very early in kiting. And, and this is when, oh gosh, you know, I was probably two years after the real uptick um and and so they were they were writing the the the, the major international rule books and and all this so um you know an example was that i, I went to a competition in uh and uh what was it south miami beach in 1992 and there was a, a workshop for precision to how to fly precision and there were like 50 people in the room and at that point um there were still head judges that that actually made a tour as eric forsberg and robbie sugarman and these kind of folks and so these are the people that the the major events brought in to then lead the competition so there's this sort of um uh there were master judges and um Europe and, and Japan has managed to retain that idea more. So I think that when they judge, um, particularly in the last 10 years or so, 15 years maybe, um, they, they understand the rules more clearly. And not to say that it's right or wrong, it's, it's just that there's a lot more people who were there when those books were written. So I, I think that they tend to be much more critical. Um, that even turned up in 1997 when um, the, the Europeans really surprised us at uh, Guadeloupe uh, competition and talking about key elements. And again, just because they've retained that knowledge so long, they, they're looking at a lot more detail. Um, and so um, let me see here. Um, I just think that the judging, and for the most part, is much more thorough. And then, of course, that drives the the, the competition side as well. Um, but I, you know, the main primary thing that I've seen, uh, again, just vicariously, is um, Europe has favored a, an overall champion. So um, when they have a competition, the the uh, precision scores and the ballet scores are then combined to provide the final ranking. Whereas in the U.S., it's predominantly you could be just you could fly only precision and then be a champion for that, or only ballet and only a champion for that. Um, but that doesn't fly in, in Europe. You you, you, you fly both, um, and of course, all of those constructs have sort of broken down and, and watered down over the years with the uh, uh, reduction of the number of competitors. But those are the main things that I've noticed: is, is just the density um, over time of of the uh, the way that they look at it, uh, the actual scoring, the, the judging. Um, and, and then the way they, they look at um, driving the, uh, the final outcome of the, the scores, you know, the rankings. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, I've, I've kind of heard whispers of, of stuff just like that, you know, when, when I've had conversations with others, uh, specifically Paul, who predominantly competed in the European scene and then came over to the American scene. Mm -hmm. And he, he experienced very much the same thing where it was – it just was different. Um, so he kind of felt the inverse. Uh, yes. But, all right. So I probably should ask this question first when it comes to competition, but it's where I'm at now. So out of all of that time flying, uh, just from an individual's perspective, not your pairs or team's perspective, uh, what are some things that you learned as an individual competitor 
that have kind of carried with you the whole time and mm. all of your approach to kite flying? Mm. Mm. Um, let's see. There, there, there are three and they're in my head and we'll, we'll see if they all stay in there. But, but, but one is one has to do with freestyling. Um, the second has to do with doing everything regardless, like just entering and, and participating in everything. Um, and, and the other has to do with, um, how I began to um, kind of develop my presentation and, and what I put into a, a performance for the judges. So, um, the first in terms of freestyle is that, um, uh, you know, I've always been sort of uh, listless in terms of, of, of creating routines. I have done that over the years, but um, for the most part, all, all of those competition years, um, I've only ever had uh, three fully choreographed routines in, in huh. what, 30 years of competition. And, and the rest, <laughs> I've picked the music that I wanted to fly to and I've, and I've winged it. So um, the, the first was the, the very first routine that I went on a, on a national circuit um, tour with. And I actually won the experience class um, championship with American Kite Magazine that year. It was uh, to Olympic fanfare. It was very straightforward, dun, dun, to dun, dun, right? So it's just this very easy kind of um, uh, track to choreograph to. And um, let's see here. Then there was uh, Bugs Bunny, right, which is uh, <laughs> I, I pretty much can't go to an event without bringing Bugs Bunny. Um, as a matter of fact, one time I went to see Dave Shankman down at Kite Party, and I, he's like, he's like, did you bring the rabbit? I'm like, I don't have the rabbit. He actually, like, turned the car around. He was driving me back to the airport. He's like, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. Um, so I ended up having to go and buy a cassette and actually chop up the track right there. Um, so, yeah, Bugs Bunny. And, and, and that, which very interesting is even that I didn't write it wrote itself progressively over the years I started flying in 92 and and every year it just like gained definition I would end up repeating the same sequence in certain areas over the years so that one I never sat down and wrote it wrote itself um and then the the third and, and last one is the um uh, the indoor routine that I flew uh, at the uh, the Louisiana um, uh, convention, the American Kite Flyers Convention, the just uh, uh, indoor Shreveport the, one. Yeah, Shreveport, exactly. Okay. Yeah, we, yeah. So, um, yeah. So the big thing was that just the freestyle. Um, which I'm going to kind of jump around and go to the other in terms of how I how I look at um, presenting a judgeable routine is. Um, how to say this, you know, you go into a competition and it's very easy to, to think, okay, well, I want to beat this person. I want to, um, I want to fly, you know, it's, it's it basically, it's, you can, you can tackle looking at uh, trying to pass a certain level or beat somebody. And what I eventually came down to was um, filling buckets, right? So when you step back and get kind of impersonal about it, um, to put out a winning sport kite routine, essentially what the judges are back there is they're looking to fill the buckets. So if you're able to identify enough, you, so you cover enough of the different um, primary recognizable shapes, right? Just as they watch, they can't help but go, Oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so they're just kind of, you're adding numbers to the bucket. Right. Um, and then, then you're looking at, um, uh, use of the wind window and you're looking at um, the range of the tricks and, um, and you basically just start to cover all these things and when you understand how the competition works and how the general mindset of a judge perceives you flying um, right down to field presence and the whole thing um, you can kind of uh, how to say I stopped flying against the flyers and I started flying against the system, if you know what I mean. Yep. So, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that to me was very profound. And, and, and big thing for me, honestly, was that it just like it took this huge weight off my heart because then it's not a matter of losing or winning. You're just like it's, it's more like it's, it's, it's more like playing calculated uh, craps, you know, <laughs> it's like you're really just going after it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can say from from other things outside of the kite community um, that 
truly my experience when it comes to competition is the people that are winning competition are not necessarily, and I'm, I got to say this with the best words that I can, it's mm. not necessarily the best flyer or the best performer or the best that executes the skill. It's mm. the one that is best able to game the system mm-hmm. and understand how to play to that system. And they also realize that they're only competing against themselves. It is, mm. it is how well they can accomplish this thing to within those confines it's not just about going out there and being like look i can do all the amazing stuff look at this because mm-hmm. the judge is like okay that was great well, <laughs> you know and, 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 well, and the other area that plays in too is even right down to, to choosing your music which was it was much more of a, a factor in the early and mid 90s because um with the the upsurge of sport kiting um you had olin turner on on the on the east coast and and you had eric forsberg and these folks on the west coast and so you know on the west coast you had miguel rodriguez and this heavy masorski um it was a much more aggressive you know it was like it was really like um uh, uh you know skateboarders sort of developing their scene it was much more aggressive um whereas on the east coast they tended to favor um, more fluid things, you know, chariots of fire and um, things of that aspect. So if I took my, my normal musical choices from the West Coast over to the East Coast, maybe it wouldn't normally score as well and vice versa. Um, so that was also very interesting to be a part of that from, from the very beginning and, and choosing the music to match the audience, you know, much, much as you described. Yeah, that's when I say gaming the system, I'm not meaning mm. it in a negative sense. No, of it's, course. it's just understanding that the competition is more. You're than... sitting down to a chess table. It's it is a game and in, exactly. in, in the best way. Exactly. Um, and then the other one, too. But while it's in my mind before I get sidetracked, which sort of plays into it all as well is that. Um, so the first kite that I ever flew was a, a dual line kite. But within very short order, I was introduced to quads. Um, uh, 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 let's say Ken and, and Gordon Austerlin from the Bay Area Sundowners gave me my very first taste of a quad in San Francisco. Um, spent a fair amount of time with uh, 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 Jim Hezeki when he was still with Revolution. Um, and so that, that was of interest to me, but I never really got good at it um, until later. And, and the moral of that story is that when I started competing in dual line in 91, um, I pretty much just focused on that. But when I started my 1992 season, which was my first, you know, I call like my first real season. I actually toured around the country with my father and, and was going after the national circuit and had a really, really good run of it. Um, every competition that I went to, I entered every damn thing they would let me. Like I, even, even, even if I didn't know how to do it, um, you know, I, I signed up for quad and I never get my first quad competition. I, I borrowed a purple rev two and flew to, I heard it through the grapevine when the California raisin commercial was hot. Um, and I sucked. I really, really sucked, but I didn't care. And, and, and it was, um, and, and pairs and you just, and the nature of the community at that time too, you just walk up in the field and be like, yo, uh, you, you, you fly a team man. you got, you got a part. Hey, you want to buddy up? Yeah. Awesome. So you could just do these pickup teams. And so I fly these pickup pairs and pick up team routines and, um, entered uh, what they called innovative at the time, which is oh, later went on to be called yeah. freestyle and, and outdoor limited. <laughs> um, and that, you know, and so there I'm starting dog steak and catch and throw and, and, it, you know, just, but the, the, the thing of that, it was that, um, I was always pretty shameless in that regard. And I, I was like, I just wanted every single opportunity to step on the field. And um, I, I can't tell you how many times uh, over the years I've been in some competition. I've, I've been entered into as many as 12 categories at a single event, right? So I have <laughs> I have three kites on that field. I've got two kites on that field. And just as I'm finishing one, they're waiting for me on the other field. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that, that um, just that, that hog wild um, taking a big fat bite out of it, um, I... I really, I, 
I treasure that. I value that. And I, I believe that that, um, that idea as opposed to just working on one thing and, and, and well, I got to do this before I do, man, no way. I just dove into everything. And, and I even took that home um, when I was in Berkeley and that's where I cut my teeth um, in the early nineties. Um, on the days off, I just fly every damn thing on every length of line. I take three different kinds of kites that were different shapes. And like, I wonder if I can stack up a team Hawaiian and a flexi foil and a something else and then make it fly. And, you know, so it's just this <laughs> wild abandon of, of learning everything, even if you, so the goal wasn't to be good. There's just to drink deeply of the cup. And then the more you drink, shoot, the more, you know, you know? Yeah. I think that's actually been a consistent theme across or a consistent approach across uh, most of what I'll just consider, you know, the master level flyers, right, are, are folks that have the knowledge and the experience is they've all said on some levels, like, you just have to fly everything. Mm-hmm. And you have to fly in every condition. And you, you just can't be waiting, you know, for perfect winds, or the perfect length of lines, or any of this, you just you pick it up and you go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's adding, um, I equate it to adding pages to the book. Yes. Right? And at some point you'll have chapters and you can reference back and then you get the whole story, but you just got to keep adding pages to the book at some point. Well, just- I, I think that even comes in because, um, you know, it's in, and we'll, well, I'm sure we'll get into this, but, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm into instruction so much. It's such a, a deep part of me and seeing um, kite flyers come in and observing how their lifespan um uh, you know, how it matures and, and, and what the, how long they stay in kiting. And, um, you know, sometimes we, we you, I know you've heard it too. And be like, well, well I'm just going to focus on the dual line and, and you know, I got to got to get good <laughs> at that. And, and there seems to me that there's this, um, I personally, I consider it a, a misnomer that um, learning quad will at the same time that you're learning dual will somehow complicate the, the two. And, I understand that, 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 that thought process, but, um, knowing humans and having seen people learn, you know, go through that growth process again and again, I, I'm not a big believer in that. I, you know, I just, I always love seeing people having sort of a triple barrel approach. That's the way I fly when I'm on the beach. I've got a dual line set up on lines off to the right. I've got a quad through a dog stake in the middle and I've got some other thing going off another way. And, um, it takes us back to play, right? It's, it's not that I'm, I, I have to reach this, the standard of, of, of acknowledgement on this one thing before I move to, man, dude, we're, we're kids in a playground. You know, if, if you, if you have the vaguest interest in it at all, just do it anyway, have fun. Yeah. I think where some folks are getting maybe, you know, confused unintentionally is when they're saying, I really have to focus on this thing before I try this thing. Yes. It's not, it's not the thing, right? Mm. You're delegating your priority of time because mm. I, I know you and I have talked about it a lot is that most of the kite flyers, you know, nowadays we're, we're weekend warriors or maybe at best, you know, one weekend a month warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're not committing the level of time that it takes to get truly, you know, in depth and and fully just have that freedom of play for most people that are doing this by themselves, you know, without guidance and all that. So you feel this like imperative, like I, I have to focus on this one thing so that I'm actually getting something out of my time here. So I feel productive, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and we get all confused in our heads and forget that, man, if you just go out and kind of fly and I know I get, crap for it from folks of like you know what i'm gonna go slap a tail on my cat and i'm just gonna go do some lazy circles (laughs) because you know what the point is is i'm out there 
<laughs> I still have a Peter Pal that I bring out with that big old tail. Um, it, but to to to, to kind of add on to what you were saying, one of the things that brought to mind as well is that um, you know, when I when I when I was involved in cutting in the early '90s, man, you could go to pretty much any known kite field not on an event weekend on a Tuesday at 1030 in the morning and there'd be like four or five kite flyers there. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one of the other things I think that we're experiencing and, and, and even not just the current climate, but even say five years ago is that we just don't have the same density um, and, 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 and prolific number of, of people that are actually engaged in it. So it used to be that you could just go to a kite field and you could actually just sample of all of the other things that are there. So as you said, you know, spending the time, the limited amount of time that we have to fly, but at the same time you could land and then go look at Bob's kite and, you know, that sort of thing. So some people are very fortunate. There are a few hot spots where um, you're going to see flyers on a more recurring basis. But I think that um, that element of being able to step on any kite field anywhere and just have a mess of, of different designers and, and, and all sorts of things happening isn't there. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on, on people having that, 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 you know, that sense that they kind of need to focus on one thing at a time. Yeah, yeah, and especially because, you know, you and I have have definitely talked about this in depth, is that absolutely in-person training is the best, Mm. right? You're you're, going to get the most out of it. Um, But when it comes to how most people are learning right now, almost the the majority of people that are picking up kites, and I'm not even talking about, you know, the the niche side of it or the niche side of it where they're coming into higher end sport kite flying and are maybe listening to this podcast type. Um, The people that are just picking up kites and flying, they're Mm self-taught and they're having to teach themselves so much on the beach. And then maybe they're getting that, that next level of, you know, I kind of am interested but where am I going to go to find this information? Where am I going to go to teach myself? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the road to competency has been a, a, an ongoing battle for us as a community, I think, you know, particularly when you, you compare it to other pastimes, you know, any other pastime, uh, shoot, uh, uh, cup stacking, you know, this is yeah. the silliest There's game, you know, pause. hundreds of videos on how to yeah, cup hundreds, stack. Hundreds. Right, whereas you try and search any of that for kiting and, you know, the the, the last ones and bless their hearts, but they're they're so incredibly dated, not not out of date, but they're so old as, as you know, the Yes. The, Mark, the Mark Reed videos, uh, Prism, um, yep. Flight School, Dodd Gross. Um, but these videos are 25 years old. They're 22 years old. Um, uh, try to find an indoor tutorial. You know, there's there's very, very little out there. I, I was I was able to put out a few um, for, for with the Kaiju for, for Kiteforge recently. But again, it just goes back to that same thing. And I think... Um, uh, it's something that uh, we've just had difficulty sort of taking responsibility for. And it goes back to the thing I talk about, the lifespan of a kite flyer. And something I've increasingly become interested in um, as the years have gone on is is, is that that road. You know, what does a kite flyer encounter as they enter the sport um, in terms of uh, what I'd call road to competency? Um, and then the, the links to the community and the, the activities that expand or provide places for them to use that newfound competency. You know, all these different things. Um, and I see so many people that... Um, they're either on the verge of or or totally did give up because of some inane issues that actually had nothing to do with them. You know, it's that, that old story, well, oh, I tried to put up a kite, but it wouldn't fly. But you and I both know, Nick, that it, the kite either was designed like crap, the, yeah. the, the lines were uneven, or 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 there just wasn't anything um, succinct that just said, hey, if you, if you set the kite up in this particular position or you wind the lines up in this particular way, right? So the, the moral of the story is that people are, 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 they're getting discouraged and giving up quite often 
because of issues that have just never been illuminated due to that 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 lack of um, uh, you know competency information that we've been able to put out over the years. So I think we've really kind of done ourselves a, a disservice um, collectively um, by not looking after that inroad, that that beginning of the lifespan um, as actively. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's, it's always been, you know, kind of frustrating for me when I, I, you know, do a YouTube search, how Mm. to set up a sport kite, Mm. right? And, or how to fly a sport kite. Now, of course, I have to go through one of my other accounts, because if I do it on my accounts, I get all the really awesome good stuff, right? (laughs) But the algorithms, if I go and I'm looking on some anonymous account, and the algorithm spits out, you know, the best view videos or the videos it thinks are best for me, like the information that's presented there. And I'm not, I don't want to necessarily knock down people that are creating content, like awesome, you're creating content, but the information they're presenting is like, yeah, that's why that person can't fly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're telling them the only way they can fly a sport kite is if their friend throws the kite in the air. Right. Well, and you know, this, yeah, yeah, there's that. And I think the other dynamic, too, and, and I have to, I want to, I have to approach this diplomatically because um, anybody that knows me well enough knows where this is coming from my, in, in my heart. But I'm going to go ahead and say it is that, um, you know, kiting in itself is chronically um, recreational, right? It's, mm-hmm. it, we, we have the ceiling. So, you know, we, we have people come in and they, they become masters and, and then they start developing, you know, new, new designs or videos or whatever it is. But most people, and I know from 31 years, I've seen, countless generations of flyers come and go um, and I, I find myself kind of, I, you know, I, I feel like a, 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 not in terms of age, but I feel like a, a dinosaur sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, it, well, I mean, the, yeah. the story is that I go to, you know, any competition, any festival, anywhere in the world and I look around and I'd be hard pressed. You know, it's pretty rare that I look around and I see a face that was there in the first 10 years that I was flying. Right. So, mm-hmm. so th- what we have essentially is that, you know, it's very hard for people once they reach a certain level of knowledge or mastery to subsidize that activity, to, to, to validate being able to put in that much time. So we tend to lose that institutional memory on, on almost a five-year role. Yeah. Um, so what we end up with, and again, is we have many people that are working with good knowledge that they've, you know, they've, they've gathered, but, um, you know, even our world champions and our national champions um, that have been around for 20 years, because it's not a subsidy pastime, this is something that they've done every other weekend or something like that. And granted, they've done it for 20 years and they've done this at an incredibly high level, but it's not something they've spent a massive amount of time on. So what we have is, in many cases, um, people that have self-sourced knowledge, you know, which is the mm-hmm. difference when you have a, a national overlapping community that is always working together. And, and you will just take something silly like cup stacking. Um, they're sharing information at such a, a high rate that there becomes this um, universally understood way to do things. You know, if you go into golf, for example, you start golfing pretty quickly, you're going to find out that you've got to place your hands on the, on the club in a certain way and you place your feet in a certain way. So, so they're mutually acknowledged operating rules to the universe. And then from there, then you run into the different styles of swing and club and what you're going to use. But like in kiting, those universally agreed upon rules are much more flexible because you have these, um, and I say this with nothing but love, but you have, you have, you have, you have, you have yeah. weekend experts, right? Yes. So it's very yep. interpretive. So these, these people have developed the best ways that they found to do it. But it hasn't been fleeced over the years against <laughs> other people, and you know, and all that. And I and I, I and I try to look at mom, even what I do critically in the same regard. Again, I've been fortunate to um, to have been able to mix my knowledge and contrast it against many, many people over the years, which is why I have a lot of um, confidence and faith in the the instruction that I give. But um, 
yeah, when it comes to people going out and looking for information, a lot of the instructional information out there does tend to be a little bit myopic. And again, there's no slight mm-hmm. to what it's the nature of the beast, right? All these people are very well intended and they're, and bless them, they're giving what they have. But it, um, sometimes it just, it, it, we don't always, the, you know, coming in, the, the new flyers don't always find that clarity of the operating rules of the universe, you know, which again, is just is something that I hope we collectively as a community, um, you know, continue to try to resolve, you know, in the years ahead. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, this just completely reminded me of of something, I, you know. I like to try and bring in uh, parallels from from outside the kite and community because essentially we're all the same. Um, but thinking of your coaching style or your mm-hmm. teaching style, and also a teaching style that I bring uh, to sports and all this, uh, kind of what you're talking about is those those master level flyers. They may or may not be very good at teaching how they did their thing, right? Well, and, and frankly, many of them don't know how they did their thing, right? right. It's something, I, uh, something they learned to do, but they never actually intellectualized, right? Right. So if, if they get to the level of trying to explain or, you know, impart their knowledge, they're only good at potentially explaining exactly how it applies for them, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily teaching the skill. Yes. yes. It's teaching their adaptation of the skill. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I know that's something I've, I've seen in, in some of your coaching is, is trying to really hone in on the skill and not necessarily teaching your adaptation of the skill, which is ironic yeah. because I can always, there are a handful of people. I'm like, that person was trained by John. Cause look, he's mimicking John's movements when he's like dancing. It's like, yep, that's a John. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. I, you know, I, that's I think different. Really, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, what's, what's important to me in instruction is, um, um, is for me, instruction is not a, um, it's not a personality thing, right? Mm-hmm. I do, I get off on it. I enjoy it so much. Um, but not, not in a mirror sense. I'm not, I'm not looking in a mirror when I'm doing this and I have no desire to, um, to, to guide a flyer to flying a particular way. And, and I, I, I get that impression. Sometimes I, I kind of hear that in the wind a little bit. Um, but that is not the case. I, so there are two main ways that I instruct. Um, the, the first is, um, you know, I have, I have a lesson coming up, uh, weekend after next with a, a general who's just gotten into quad flying um, and it's basically the the way that we approach that is is we we demystify the operating rules of the universe this is a kite this is how it works so this is the functionality of it these are the things that make it do these things and then as I as I spend those that initial time with the flyer I'm really interested in and and quite romantic about um, seeing them how do they move? What do they, what do they like? What are the things that naturally come out of them? And so as we go through that process, it's quite organic. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think the way that I would describe it is that I, is I kind of, I look to those things and I, and I bolster them. So I find the things that they like, and then I, I add to that. And it's, it's not to make them better, but to give them a deeper understanding, a deeper connection with how and why and what it feels like and, and how to, how to reproduce it more and how to treat themselves better when they, mm-hmm. when they fail, you know, so that, that, that fail your um, behavior um, is, is a big one. Um, you know, so I deal with internal dialogue a lot. You know, somebody's flying and they, and they crash and you, and you see it, their body sinks, the posture changes and they, and, and so that's internal dialogue, right? 
And yeah. so, um, you know, I'm really big on, on, I'm Absolutely. really big on, you know, I'm big on <laughs> embracing the, the errors and the crashes and, you know, be like, look at that, that's a, you messed up in a totally new way, right? You're not messing up the same way chronically over and over again. You're doing great. I mean, you're experimenting. Um, so yeah, it's it, the, the biggest thing for me is that, again, it goes back to the recreational thing. I know, I know most of the people that I'm working with, uh, this is, this is something that, that they've, they've found some light some lightness in right they can mm -hmm. they so so i just want to um uh empower that predominantly so that's the main way that i teach um and that can go in any number of different uh, depths or directions but it's always to uh, more so to fulfill that person and when i see them find their wings and those wings look different than anybody else's wings <laughs> yeah that is that's the <laughs> deepest cup of of nectar that i could ever ever drink from if i could if I could only fly or only instruct right now, if I had to make that decision for the rest of my career, I would only instruct, believe it or not. Um, oh, I, I do. I, I've come to mm -hmm. the same thing with uh, one of my sports, right? Mm -hmm. Is that if I had to make the choice right mm -hmm. now and I could only pick one or the other, as much as I love playing, yes. I would coach because yes, coaching yes. Is, is such an amazing feeling. So, and, and, and I want to, I want to kind of close out a thought that I had on that. Is mm -hmm. that so we talk about the, the empowerment and the, and the main thing in that is that there is no right or wrong way to fly. You could go yeah. out there and just keep on crashing, but if you're having fun and that is fulfilling your experience, then you're, you're winning. Um, so the, the other side of instruction that I do is, and it's not very frequent, but the one place that it turns up is what um, I call my squad clinics. Mm -hmm. So a squad clinic is um, where I will take three or five, generally three pilots and myself to make four or six um, person team. And they come, they come to get beat down. They, so, so, you know, I've, I've led teams all over the world in some of the most mind blowing conditions you could ever deal with. Um, I'm very confident in the knowledge of how to get something done. And um, so these squad clinics, I really get off on them because these are people have the, the confidence um, in, in, in that, in that experience. And we drink deep and, and I, I don't pull any punches. So this is not a, it's not an empowerment game in the same way. This is like, all right, we're coming to get schooled. So um, one of the, <laughs> yeah, one of the here's way, the fire hose drink from it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So one of the ways that I kind of described that is, um, you know, uh, is um, uh, in the course of a weekend, I can take three pilots that have never flown together before. And my goal, is to get them as close to the the paragon of team flying that I've ever been able to experience in a very short period of time. Um, nice. And, you know, and, and, on, and on the instructional side, that takes a particular psychology, right? You got to come to that situation with no ego. You got to come very, very honest and very objective about, you know, here's proof and pudding. And again, there's no right or wrong way to fly, but I will put my knowledge and my training methodology toe to toe with anything, any day of the week. And, you know, you give me two days and if somebody is willing and they actually give their soul over and, and we have a good rapport and, and, and we, neither of us have any ego in it, dude, we will, we will get there real, real fast. And, and I really like that. So this is that kind of that distinction between um, empowering a, a recreational side and, and just, you know, uh, uh, illuminating someone's experience and then like busting your ass to get really good, you know, and then both of those are really <laughs> yeah. fun, but um, especially because I get to do it so rarely. Um, I really, really, really like that squad clinic kind of approach. And um, in terms of uh, individual private lesson, um, I think I've only had it happen like, like twice um, one person. And, and the only time is, and it's only one person that ever said, okay, I'm hiring you for three days. And I want you to download, man, like everything, you know, <laughs> like bring every kite you oh, have, boy. 
every format you know dog steak catch and throw dual line slack line no wind like it, it, that guy's brain was his brain was jelly by the end of three days <laughs> on a 72 hour john baresi experience yeah it was fun it's fun and then they got to listen to me go on about kites all night you know over drinks it's, it's yeah. just non-stop yeah <laughs> yeah so you know all joking and giving shit aside mm-hmm. you know because because we are friends um yes. i I might, you know, joke and say that, yeah, I can, I can see, you know, someone that's been trained by John because the way they move that, you know, that's just, that is definitely the joking. The realistic Mm -hmm. side of it is I can tell generally someone who has been trained by you or has attended one of your clinics. And this is, this is mainly quad line because I haven't, Mm -hmm. I haven't seen many on the dual line side. I know you've done a handful of dual line teaching, but it's, it's predominantly quad, correct? Yes. Yes. And it's mostly just because the quad is just so darned accessible and, and the, uh, the road to competency is infinitely shorter. Um, within right. two days you can train somebody to be fully, fully competent. Um, dual line on average, you're going to need probably two weeks of the same. Yeah. So, uh, the, the thing that stands out for me though, that kind of is the telltale that this is, this is someone who has most likely attended a training session with you is it's a level of confidence when it comes to their flying, right? They, they walk out to the field, they know where they're putting their kite. They, they know what they're going to try to do with their kite and they at least feel confident enough to fly it and to own their space. Oh, you right? know, I, 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 just, I just got a huge warm fuzzy. And do you know why I got a warm fuzzy? <laughs> is because because you just took me into that world where I'm on the beach and I'm watching them being comfortable. Like mm-hmm. having confidence and being comfortable and going out and just immediately having access to expressing themselves and flying in whatever way they wish, understanding the operating rules of the mechanical universe, you know, that they're that they're working with. That's that's awesome, man. He made my day. Aw. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, but, but, but don't I worry, I'll knock you down a peg or two. <laughs> oh, I no doubt, no doubt. But the other thing I want to touch on though is, you know, and, and I and I know it said half in jest, but the you know, the thing about when the person moves like like me or whatever, mm-hmm. um I think, I think, you know, it bears saying that, um, I, man, I freaking love flying. I fly like I, yeah. I, you know, it comes right out of my soul. I, I dance and I move and everything that I feel, everything that I am is, is said right there in the kite. Um, and particularly in the last five years, I've just become utterly shameless in that I'm, I'm so identified with my kite and I, ex- I can express myself so directly with it. Um, and I think that sometimes, um, uh, some people, you know, they, they, I say they, you know, they, 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 they feel they want that. to mimic that. Not in a good sense. No, no, like, no. They, they want to feel I'm that. Hijack. Yeah, yeah. It was, I, would, I would venture to say that everybody already feels it, right? It's just that they, they then see, you know, some people feel it in surfing. Some people feel it in fly fishing. Mm-hmm. Some people feel it in painting on canvas. Um, so when you see it, you know, it's that same thing. It's what we're all seeking, right? We're all looking for it. And then when you find somebody who has found that absolute, you know, at a zero point connection with something and is able to express them that way. You know, we, we identify with that um, for some mm-hmm. people it'll be kites and some people will be something else. But um, so that's one of the things that you'll see with my, my brands and, and the flyers that um, utilize my kites. We don't all fly the same, but, but by God, it, 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 it means something, you know, it stands for something. It stands for um, the way you feel about what you do. And that's really, really important. I think that comes out very strongly when you when you see the photos and the videos of of Jin, um, in particular. You know the the quadline kite that we produce through Kite Forge is, you know they're they're not all trying to fly like Baresi. 
And if I hear that again, I swear I'm going to smack somebody <laughs> in, the, in the cheek. You know, like, God bless you. I love you. But that's come on now. Come on now. Yeah. And what it comes down to is like, you know, we're, dude, we're, we're badasses. We're having fun, right? We're not better or worse mm-hmm. than anybody else. But it, there's a lifestyle. There's an energy behind it. And you see different versions of that. You see uh, there's a version of that with Prism. Um, there's mm-hmm. a version of that with uh, Lamb Hawk. You know, it's, there's this, these are kind of multi, like little, little universes where people have identified with that, that person's flavor of expression. You know, there's no, there's no shame in identifying with somebody and, 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 and channeling a little bit of that. God knows I've channeled half a dozen different flyers over the years. You know, and my, my, my flying style has evolved probably my flight, my, my style's never stopped evolving. And it usually happens in major bursts every three to five years is suddenly this new, and I feel it within myself. I can see it in the video. You can go back through it in history. Um, and you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's neat to see all the different, uh, expressions that people find inspiration from. And, and, and I always tip my hat to the, the, the flyers that I've been able to channel over the years that have, that have moved me and pushed me to new levels. All right. So thank you for tuning in and listening to this first episode of a multi-part interview with John Baresi. I'm going to go ahead and include in the show notes some of the information on how you can directly make contact with him or find some of his information online. Uh, If you liked what you heard here, consider going to buymeacoffee.com slash sportkite and hitting that donate button. Would also love it if you hit the subscribe button on the Sport Kite podcast and share it with all of your friends. Let them know that you're listening and that you absolutely love this sport. Um, Yeah. All right. So stay tuned. We're going to be publishing more. And I just wanted to say a big, big thank you to all of you. And I also want to give a shout out to our sponsors. And that would be level one kites usa that would be canvas kite designs and of course that would also be kitelife.com slash kiteforge so big shout out to all of them for their support go give them some love and yeah we will talk with you later bye